Mark chapter 3. I want to begin this morning reading together verses 1 through 6. I'll read aloud. You follow along there in your Bibles with me. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Thank you that he not only accomplished the plan of salvation for us, but also lived a perfect life to set an example for us to follow. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word what we need to know and change us how we need to be changed so that we might be more like Jesus. And I pray it in His precious name. Amen. You know, there is really nothing that demonstrates our selfish pride more than the times that we get upset when something good happens to someone else. You know, if you think about that rationally, logically, it makes no sense. What rational reason would you have to get mad because something good happened to somebody else? It didn't hurt you in any way. It didn't harm you. It didn't set you back. It simply was, at worst, the fact that you were omitted from something good happening. And here in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we read a story about the time that Jesus healed a man who had a crippled hand. But instead of rejoicing that this man had been healed, instead of praising the Lord for this wonderful miracle, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees were so mad and so stubborn that they left from there and immediately began to scheme and to plot how they could murder Jesus. You know, if we're honest, all of us would have to admit that at times we are hard-headed and hard-hearted. And really that was the Pharisees in a nutshell. They were a very stubborn, self-righteous people. It's easy to cast stones at them, but we must realize that we do not always respond the right way to God's working and God's blessing on others. Sometimes we're skeptical, sometimes we're cynical, sometimes we're even jealous. Sometimes we would rather be seen as right and superior than to see something good happen to someone in a way that we did not expect or a way that we didn't think was proper. 
We need to understand this morning that that kind of stubbornness grieves the heart of our Savior. And instead of having the attitude of the Pharisees, which is one of stubbornness and hard-heartedness, we need to have the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not see a man who uh, was bound by religious traditions but rather saw an opportunity to heal a man who for a long time had been crippled. And he did it in a way that the religious professionals thought was inappropriate, but he did it in the right way because he is God. And God's methods may not always line up with the way we think they should be done. But know this, that whenever God's methods contradict our preferences, then we are the ones who are wrong, not God. God is never wrong. And we must humble ourselves enough to admit that and to say that God is always right, even if that means we're wrong. Number one, notice with me the man with the ailment in our story. The Bible tells us that Jesus entered again into a synagogue And uh, in the life of Jesus and His ministry here on earth, we see this pattern on many occasions where Jesus went into the synagogues and there He would teach people from the Bible. The very first occasion He did this, He read a passage from the book of Isaiah and then announced to the world that that passage was fulfilled before their eyes, declaring Himself in in essence to be the Messiah. And here He comes into the synagogue again on another occasion But on this particular occasion, there is a man there, the Bible says, he had a withered hand. We don't know exactly why or what the the, uh, exact ailment was here, but the man had a problem. He was crippled in his hand. Now, what should our reaction be to someone like that? What would be the proper, reasonable response when you see someone who is crippled in any way, who has, a, who has an ailment, who has an impairment that is somehow, you know, hindering them from, from doing what they would like to do and participating in society like the majority of people do. What should be our response? It should be compassion, right? We should look at a person like that and want to help them. And that was Jesus' response. He saw this man and he saw the opportunity to heal an individual. He had compassion on this man. Our Savior is a Savior of compassion. Often when he looked out at the crowds of people, the Bible says that he was moved with compassion on them. He didn't look at them and scowl. He didn't look at them and in disgust. No, he looked on them and he had compassion. He had sympathy. He saw them in their imperfections and their ailments and he felt bad. He wanted to do something to help them. Compassion is is simply an attitude of the heart of truly loving your neighbor as yourself. Compassion is is the golden rule in your heart to do to others as you would have them do to you. If you were the man in the story here, would you have wanted for the religious leaders to try and use you as a pawn to get to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or would you would rather Jesus have compassion on you and heal you? 
I think we'd all agree we'd want to be the object of compassion. It's the golden rule. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. It's what James calls the royal law in James 2, 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And so they're there in this synagogue and there's this man with a withered hand. But notice secondly, the search for an accusation. And it says that they watched him, verse number 2, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. All right, let's get our pronouns straight here. Who was the they that watched Jesus? Help me out here. Some of you are grammar teachers. You should be able to figure this out. All right, Pharisees. I heard it over here on this side. Uh, We know it's the Pharisees in particular based on verse number 6. All right. So they, the Pharisees and the religious professionals, watched who? It says watched him. Who's the him? Jesus. Whether he, that is Jesus, would heal him. Now who's the second him? The man with the withered hand. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they, who's that? Pharisees, might accuse him. Who's that? Jesus. All right, good. We got the grammar out of the way. All right, so the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if Jesus would heal the man with the withered hand so that they might have a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, let's back up just a second. It's obvious that they were looking for a way to accuse Jesus. They were searching for an accusation. But to you and me, we read this and it's like, how are they going to accuse Jesus of something bad if he heals a man? It was actually not the fact that he healed a man. It was the fact that if he healed him, it was the Sabbath day. This is what they were looking for. They wanted to be able to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. To them, that was a huge deal. I mean, that was like uh, uh, definitely on the list of top ten sins in the eyes of the Pharisees. Breaking the Sabbath was up there. I mean, that was just one of their sacred cows, you might say, right there. That was the big deal. Now, who were these these Pharisees? Well, they were the religious professionals. But what's interesting here in this particular passage, you see it very clearly, that they were more concerned about maintaining their religious system and their preferences and their man-made rules than they were about helping a sick man. They were more concerned. They weren't watching to see if Jesus would heal the man so that they could applaud and say, yes, we are so thankful that man is healed. No, they wanted to see if he would heal the man so that they could accuse Jesus. That was their attitude. They were hoping that the man would be healed, not for that man's sake, but so that they might have something bad to say about Jesus. Now let's address this thing of observing the Sabbath very quickly. That was the issue in question here. And understand that uh, that was one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In the Old Testament especially, um, that was something that God put very clearly into the Old Testament law to observe the weekly Sabbath. And then there were other Sabbaths on top of that at different times of the year. Uh, There were Sabbath years. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year in which the land was to rest. Every seventh seven years, so the 50th year, would be the year of Jubilee. And so there were all these Sabbaths that were built in. The Sabbath was very important. 
The precedent was set all the way back in creation when God created all the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day. And it is very, very important that we follow this principle that God has laid out, that we set aside time in our schedule for rest and for worship. The Sabbath is important. But they took something that had been instituted for the benefit of man through rest and refreshment and worship, and they turned it into a burden. Keep your finger... Actually, you may not even have to turn, but just uh, go back to Mark chapter 2, um, just the last two verses there. And He said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to serve man, but they had turned it around completely opposite and taught it as if man was supposed to serve the Sabbath. Like everything had to be done uh, the way they said so that you would not uh, have any chance of being guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And it became one of those heavy burdens and grievous to be born that Jesus talked about in Matthew 23. Listen, God's commands are not grievous. They're not burdensome. If God tells us to do something, we can do it, and it is for our benefit to do it. It is when man distorts God's commandments that they become burdens to us. So they're searching for an accusation here. They want Jesus to heal this man so that they can accuse Jesus. Notice verses 3 and 4, the question that Jesus asked, the question of the Almighty here. He said, first of all, to the man with a withered hand, stand forth. So he calls his attention, to, everybody's attention to this man, tells him to stand up. And then he turns to them. Who's the them? That would be the crowd, specifically the Pharisees. And he asks this question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Notice this question got right to the heart of the matter here. The Lord Jesus Christ did this on a number of occasions in His interactions with the Pharisees. He would ask them a question and, and it would just cut right to the bone, get right to the heart of the issue there. Let me try to summarize what, what He's saying here. Well, first of all, there's, a, there's a kind of a general idea behind this. Can you do anything on the Sabbath? I mean, can you do anything at all? Obviously, you can do something because everybody there had gotten out of bed that morning, presumably got dressed and came to the synagogue, all right? So you can do some things. And they all agree, they all admit that, that the Sabbath was not an absolute rule where you had to stay, you know, horizontal on your cot all day long, all right? You can get up, you can do something. So tell me, is it against God's law to do good on the Sabbath? or to do evil? Which of those would be breaking God's law any other day of the week? Doing evil, right? We should do good every day of the week. So is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? If you, can, if you can do anything and you can do some things, should you do good or evil? You should do good. And then he follows it up. Is it lawful to, uh, uh, to uh, save life or to kill? So you have an opportunity uh, on a Sabbath day to save someone's life. Just 
you know, imagine your own scenario, whatever that might look like. You have an opportunity to save someone's life or through your inaction, ensure their death. Which would be right to do? Well, James would later write, "...to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin." If you have the opportunity to do good, and you refuse to, that's not good. That's sinful. And so he asks them these questions. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And what did they do? They held their peace. They didn't say a word. They couldn't answer his question. So if it's, if it's not against God's law to do good and to save a life on the Sabbath day, why would they condemn anyone for doing good on the Sabbath? What Jesus is doing here is pointing out the hypocrisy of their standard. Turn over to the book of Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Here's another incident where Jesus healed a person on the Sabbath. Luke chapter 13, look at verse 15. It says, The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Notice how he pointed out their hypocrisy here. On the Sabbath day, you have no problem going out to the barn and letting your cow out or your donkey so that it can go and get some water. You understand it would be cruel to make your animal starve and go thirsty all day long. So you go out and you do that little bit of work and you think that's okay, but yet you're going to say that it is breaking God's law to loose someone from the bounds of a disease that, that had kept them crippled for so long? It was a problem of misplaced priorities. The Pharisees put the higher priority on their system and their preferences than they did on people. They cared more about their way of doing things than they did about others. That was the problem. And when Jesus, back in Mark 3, asked them these questions, their response was simply an awkward silence. They held their peace. They couldn't answer Jesus without condemning themselves. So they did what we all do in a situation like that. They avoided the question. That's what we do when we don't like the truth because it makes us look bad. We ignore it, we deny it, or we redefine it. We do anything except accept it. Because if we accept it, then we have to admit we're wrong. Now we look at verse number 5, and excuse me, we see the Savior's anger. It says, When He had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. The word anger here that describes how Jesus looked at these people is the same word that's used in other places of Scripture where we're commanded to put off anger. Is that a contradiction? Or does this show that Jesus is a sinner? No. No, Jesus is not a sinner. All right? In Him there is no sin. 
we must understand that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus looked on them with anger. Why was He angry? We don't even have to speculate because the verse tells us He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He had just asked them a question that pointed out their hypocrisy, giving them an opportunity to repent. Giving them an opportunity to say, you know what? He's got a point. It's more important that this man is healed than for our arbitrary preferences and man-made rules to be upheld. But they didn't do that, did they? No, they just held their peace. And at their stubbornness and hard-headedness and hard-heartedness, Jesus was grieved and it made Him angry. He was angry because that kind of stubbornness and that sinful attitude, if not repented of, would destroy them. He was angry and he was sad because they were being stubborn and obstinate and hypocritical and hateful, murderous, hard-hearted and hard-headed. Because their hypocrisy would insist a man suffer needlessly. Jesus could heal the man. And he does. But they would either have the man go unhealed so that their preference was held up or they would let Jesus heal the man as long as they could accuse Jesus for doing it. Either way, they wanted the man to suffer needlessly. Their stubbornness caused them to refuse to concede that they were wrong. Listen, some people are so stubborn that even when they are confronted by the Son of God, they refuse to admit they're wrong. That's what's happening here. I mean, this. sometimes we think, well, if, if only somebody that has more education or somebody that has more experience in dealing with these kinds of people, if, if only somebody else could, could deal with this person, then they would see they're wrong and they would admit the error of their ways. Listen, these people wouldn't even do it with God the Son. That is the stubbornness that is in the heart of sinful man. Their hate would use this occasion as an occasion of doing good, and they would use it as an excuse to plot murder. And so Jesus had every right to be angry with them. It should go without saying since He is God, but when you break it down and you realize just the, how hard-hearted these men were being, Jesus had every right to be angry and sad at what they were doing. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And so, notice the healing announcement in the rest of verse number 5. He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Now, I believe Jesus did it this way for a very particular reason. Because Jesus didn't always do it the same way when He healed people. He did it different ways at different times. Turn over to John chapter 9. I'll show you another, another incident of Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. Jesus liked to heal on the Sabbath day. I just wonder if He didn't do it to poke at the Pharisees, you know. But here's another incident, Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. Similar 
situation as far as the reaction from the religious leaders. We're not going to read all the story, but let's skip down to verse number 14. The blind man's been healed. Now he's been brought before the religious leaders saying, who, who healed you on the Sabbath? And, and he said it was a man named Jesus. And, and uh, he told me to, uh, he, he spit on the ground, he made clay, and he told me to go wash my eyes out, and, and I was healed. And they got upset, verse 14, and it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Why is that significant? Well, one of the rules that, this, that the Pharisees had developed in this whole tangled system of observing the Sabbath, according to them, one of the rules they had developed was you can't spit on the Sabbath. Yeah. Well, some people say, well, spitting's a bad habit. You shouldn't do it ever. Well, this was even beyond that. Here was their reasoning. See if you can follow this. All right, they said you can't spit on the Sabbath because... If you spit on the Sabbath, somebody might step on the ground where you spit. And the mud would cling to the bottom of their sandal. And as they walked away, it would, it would come up and later fall off. And that's kind of like turning the soil, you know, like when you plow. And, and so if it's wrong to turn the soil by plowing on the Sabbath day, then it would be wrong to spit because that might happen accidentally. All right, does anybody else agree that sounds a little bit (laughs) far-fetched? That was, honestly, that was one of their rules. So when I say they had all these convoluted rules, I mean, this is the level we're talking about. So why did Jesus spit and make clay and rub it on the man's eyes? I mean, we read that and we're like, ew, why did he do that? Again, he was going to use it as an illustration. They would rather this blind man in John chapter 9 have stayed in his condition instead of being healed because Jesus did it the wrong way on the wrong day. But that's not how he did it in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, all he did was speak. He said, stretch forth thy hand. I don't know if Jesus had pockets, but if he did, I imagine him standing there with his hands in his pockets. And he just says to the man, stretch forth thy hand. And the man sticks out his hand and all, look, lo and behold, it's healed. Now, what action did Jesus take that day? None. No physical action there. He didn't rub anything on it. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't go through any outward physical motion. He simply spoke a word and the man was healed. And I just, I just wondered if that didn't make the Pharisees matter than anything. Because how are they going to accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath when he just stood there and said something? I mean, are we now going to make the case that you can't talk on the Sabbath? I mean, this was designed by the Lord Jesus Christ to frustrate the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus healed this man without lifting a finger. And so it could not be said that he violated the Sabbath in any way unless they were prepared to outlaw talking. In other words, Jesus beat them at their own game. There's several instances of this in Scripture. I I love it. Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and He beats them at their own game. 
He did it often to point out the error of their way and their hypocrisy. So notice now, number six, the conspiracy of the adversaries. So the Pharisees went forth and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Doesn't that seem like a little bit of an overreaction to you? Hey, we just saw Jesus heal a man. Didn't even lift a finger to do it. All he said was stretch forth thy hand and the man did and his hand was healed. Let's kill him. That's senseless. Irrational. They went out and they had such a deep-seated hatred for Jesus that they would respond to this miraculous healing of a man in their own community by immediately seeking to murder the one who did the healing. Now there's a, there's a detail here. We can't look over. It says that they went out and they took counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians, that's a group that's not mentioned very often in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's only three times Two other times in, um, in this instance here in Mark chapter 3 where they're mentioned. The Herodians apparently were a more of a political group than they were a religious group. There was some overlap there. But they were a group of Jewish people who were aligned politically with the dynasty of Herod, going all the way back to Herod the Great. And I don't want to get into the uh, history of Rome too much right then, but uh, it was Herod the Great who had built the temple. It was Herod who had ordered the baby boys killed when Jesus was born. And later, um, his offspring, his sons, would be involved in politics for, uh, for a little while. And, uh, and one, Herod the Tetrarch, um, is actually still ruling in Jesus' day. And uh, he's uh, mentioned over in Luke chapter 13 and verse number 31. So the Jews were this, this political group who were aligned with the family of Herod. And what that meant was is that they were okay with the Roman occupation of Israel. And they thought it was fine to pay taxes to Rome in exchange for the protections that Rome gave. And so there was, there was a, this, this political faction known as the Herodians that most of the other Jewish leaders didn't like. So you had several different groups of religious and, and, and civil leaders in, in Israel. You had, you had, of course, the Pharisees. Uh, you had the Sadducees. Uh, you had uh, the Essenes was another group. Uh, and you had, you had kind of all of these different groups that were warring for power and always jockeying for position. And that's what the Herodians were. They were one of those uh, uh, factions, if you will. And usually the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along because the Pharisees were very, very nationalistic. All right? They were extremely patriotic. I mean, everything was all about Israel and, and they wanted Israel to be its own kingdom again and they wanted Israel to rule the world again. And, and that's why their idea of the Messiah uh, was restricted to the idea that he was going to come and set up a, po- a political kingdom here on earth. And, and so that was the Pharisees. It was all Israel. The Herodians, they were the compromisers. They were like, yeah, we can be Jews, but we can be Romans too. And just like politics today, there wasn't a whole lot of reaching across the aisle. But the Pharisees went out, here's the point, and they had so much hate for Jesus that they went and sought out the Herodians and said, hey, look, 
We need to work together, see how we can get rid of this guy. It's that old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here. This is two groups that usually would not work together, but they're willing, get this, they're willing to compromise on national sovereignty, but not on religious preference. The Pharisees were willing to compromise on national sovereignty, but not on their idea of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. That is how stubborn and hard-hearted they were. And what was their solution to this imagined problem? They wanted to kill Jesus, of course. How they might destroy Him. They weren't talking about reputation destruction. They weren't talking about silencing him or canceling him and just, you know, marginalizing him. No, they wanted to kill him. They just wanted to kill him. Be done with it. They were willing to commit murder rather than compromise their preference. Now, I I know we, we, we read this and we're like, well, that is really, really extreme. And it is. It is the extreme case. But understand that if we're not careful, we can go down that same path where our ideas, our preferences, our traditions become more important than the truth of God's Word and the souls of men. It is a danger that we must be careful of. We have to make sure that we do not allow our hearts to become hardened to the truth of God's Word and to the souls of men. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. It's about time to get our gardens in. I know a lot of you do some kind of gardening, whether it's vegetables or flowers or anything. And, and this time of year, it's time to start working that soil again. We got our tiller out the other day and tilled up a little bit to get some of our early plants in the ground. Why do you do that? Well, because as the ground sits over the course of months, it settles and it gets, it gets hardened down. And in order for plants to thrive, they need that soil loosened up. They need the nutrients in there and the moisture and everything needs to be in the right balance. And so you get out there with your tiller or your plow or cultivator, whatever it is that you're using to break up that ground in order that the plants might thrive. We've got to understand that left alone, our hearts will harden just like the soil. And we need our hearts to be broken up on a regular basis And that breaking up of our hearts is done by the Word of God. And when we respond to God's working in our life, how do we heal a hardened heart? I want to close by giving you three things that we need to do to keep our hearts from being hard. Number one, we have to be humble. We have to be humble. I could be wrong. Those are four very important words. And you're thinking, yep, you could be, Pastor. No, no, no. All of us need to say those words. I could be wrong. But I'm so sure that I'm right. You could be wrong. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm wrong. 
You could be wrong. Yeah, but I've thought this way for so long. You could be wrong. Listen, the only thing that can never be wrong is the Word of God. That's it. The only thing on this earth that can never be wrong is God's Word. You and I could be. That means we need to be willing to humble ourselves and admit that. When our heart is overcome with pride, when we refuse to even entertain the possibility that we might be wrong about something, we are shutting ourselves off from God's grace working in our lives daily. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. You see, it is a prideful fool who refuses to learn. And you know, to learn something, you have to admit you don't know it yet. The Lord deliver us from know-it-all Christians. I don't care if you've been saved a week or a hundred years. You do not know it all yet, and neither do I. It, It amazes me. The more I study the Word of God and the more I learn about God, the more I realize I don't know nothing. God is so much bigger than us and His Word is so powerful and infinite, there is no way that we could learn everything there is to know about God and His Word in a lifetime. We don't know everything yet, so humble yourself and be willing to admit it and say, I could be wrong. If you refuse that, then your heart is already hardening. Number two, not only be humble, but also have compassion. Have compassion. Love others. Get your eyes off of yourself. You know what they tell us the most popular posted picture on social media is? A selfie. How many of you know what a selfie is? How many of you have no idea and are afraid to admit it? Oh, okay. A selfie, you know? It's where you take your phone and take a picture of yourself. It's the most popular picture on social media, they say. I can't help but wonder if that's just a symptom of a true problem that we have of always being wrapped up with ourselves. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to take a selfie, all right? But it is wrong when we refuse to think of others and have compassion. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Get your eyes off of yourself. All the Pharisees could see was whether or not Jesus was going to break their silly rule. They didn't look at the man with the withered hand and say, I hope Jesus heals that man for that man's sake. No. They were selfish. Have compassion on others. You may be going through a hard time. But I guarantee you there are other people that God has put in your life that are also going through a hard time. Don't compare. Don't say, well, my, my, my trial is harder than their trial. They should be ministering to me. No, 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 no. The sin of comparison never leads to anything good. Look outside yourself and have compassion on others. They're hurting too. Help them. If somebody has something good happen to them, rejoice with them. God has blessed them. Be happy about it. 
How do we heal a hard heart? Have humility, that is, be humble. Number two, have compassion. And then number three, how to heal a hard heart? Submit to God. Submit to God. God, if you're a Christian, listen to this. God is your master and your king. You owe Him your allegiance. Sometimes I think we get the wrong idea about submission, that it's somehow a sign of weakness, and that somehow only a, a person who is uh, inferior to other people will submit. Listen, if we're going to be honest about it, we are weak and inferior compared to God. But think of it this way. He's your king. And submission is when you bow your knee before your king and say, my Lord, what would you have me do? And when he gives you the orders, you go out and you do it. Submit yourself to God. You are His servant. You are His subject. And so bow your will to His. Let His Word have the final say in your life. Practically, I think that's one of the biggest ways that we can demonstrate submission to God is when we submit ourselves to the facts of Scripture and not our feelings or our fickle preferences. When we say, Thus saith the Lord, I believe it, and I'll do it. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's when we confuse what we think and what we feel versus what God says that our hearts become hardened. The Pharisees, they were hard-headed and hard-hearted. Humble yourself before God and watch God work in whatever way God deems is best. And when God works, rejoice in it and glorify in it. I can think of many examples of how this might be demonstrated in our world today. Let me just give you a for instance. Let's say God were to save the soul of a homosexual individual through the influence of our church. Say this person came and they bowed their knee right here in our midst and accepted Christ as our Savior, what would your reaction be? The Pharisee would say, no. That can't happen. That's wrong. That would be the hard-hearted and the hard-headed reaction. But someone who's following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ would have compassion and would rejoice that a sinner repented and that they were saved. You say, that sounds pretty extreme. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for God to do some extreme stuff. But if we're going to be hard-headed and hard-hearted about it, we're going to miss what God does. We're going to miss out on God's working.